I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. My dad and I talked every Saturday morning. From the time I left St. Louis at age 18 until he died 25 years later. He'd go to his office, open his mail, and then call me at 10 a.m. Central Time, like clockwork. Mostly I looked forward to those weekly calls. But sometimes they could be tough, like one in 1998, when I told him I wanted to make a documentary about Howard Mechanic. No, he said, absolutely not. Don't get involved. I told him I was going to do it anyway. He told me to stay out of it. I hung up on him. He hated when I did that. Howard Mechanic may have been his client, but he'd become our shared obsession. By this time, Howard had been a fugitive for nearly three decades. I didn't think that he'd gone to Canada, and I didn't think he was dead. It only took a couple of weeks to find people who were in touch with Howard. I sent them a letter explaining what I wanted to do. Talk to Howard through intermediaries. Direct contact felt too risky. About a month later, I got a call, and the voice on the other end of the line said, Is this Nina Gilden Seavey? Yes, I told him. He said he was calling from the U.S. Marshal Service and that they believed I'd been in touch with Howard Mechanic. And then he explained in great detail the consequences for aiding and abetting a federal fugitive. That was when I realized why my father had tried to stop me. He wasn't protecting his emotional turf. He was protecting me. He lived with harassment. He suspected his phone was tapped. Every single year, he was audited by the IRS. He knew what the government could do to you, and he didn't want me in their crosshairs. But now it was too late. I'm Nina Gildan-Seavey, and this is My Fugitive. We talked in the last episode about what the FBI did to my father's clients, people like Percy Green and Jane Sauer, and the students at Washington University. People are informants, they sort of stick out, but you can't really tell. You have to always assume that somebody's listening. You'd hear clicking and clunking on the telephone lines, and I remember discussions, you know, and somebody say, well, who was that? What was what was that on the on the phone? And I say, well, somebody's probably listening. And at meetings, you would expect informants. If you went to a general meeting, there would be some. That is Howard Mechanic. I did find him. Years after the argument with my dad and the call from the U.S. Marshals, and long, long after the events he's describing. I'm going to start Howard's story at WashU. 
shortly after he arrived in St. Louis. I didn't really have an opportunity to develop my own personality until I got away and went to school. And I sort of figured out what my direction was in life. When Howard arrived at WashU in the fall of 1966, he wasn't the long-haired hippie the FBI would come to watch. I was a product of the 50s, and that was the years of conformity. And I conformed. I was the average American and was what would be considered a nerd or something like that. And I was in a fraternity, which shows you what type of person I was at that time when I went to the college. I was in A.E. Pi, a Jewish fraternity. But as he met new people and new ideas, his thinking started to change. I wasn't really involved in any anti-war activities, but that was happening at that time, so I might have started to question authority and question the conformity and the image that we had of the United States and the world and how things were supposed to be. We're just perfect country and we're the leaders of the free world and believed there might have been a crack in the story and things started developing from there. The crack would widen over the next two years. Howard got involved in draft resistance. He became a fixture at campus meetings and protests, many of which had student informants hiding in the ranks. Here's Howard reading from a handwritten report dated September 30th, 1969. Student volunteer, he provided the following information. There's a meeting for an alternative to SDS. Howard Mechanics stated due to a mix-up, one group held a meeting at the, okay, and uh, Mechanic is going to enroll in a karate class. Mechanic said he was, wants to beat up some pigs. The report says Howard will be going to Chicago the following month for demonstrations led by the Weather Underground, the radical arm of the anti-war movement. The event would come to be known as the Days of Rage. And it's clear that this report is from a student informant, name redacted, with the parenthetical note, protect by request, someone who didn't want their name known. Well, that's what it is, yeah, that student is providing information. And I don't know if this is a somebody that has been working with them for a while, or they just got somebody new to work with them. It's hard to say, but it's obviously somebody there who wanted to be protected for some reason. Two things about this report. First, Howard says he never wanted to beat up cops, and he never said he did. All I can say is, obviously, after 50 years, I don't remember what I said at any meetings, but it just doesn't make sense for me to do that. You know, this is a public meeting, and our college newspaper had stories about our meetings and stuff. My friends know that I was not into this kind of beating up some pigs. Uh, I just can't, can't see have, having said something like that or anything close to it. The other thing is the note that Howard was going to the days of rage. Howard said then, says now, he didn't go. But there's another document, another FBI report, that said Howard was in a car headed to that protest. I wasn't there, but they had a file they said, here's, here's the car. Howard Mechanic was in this car with so-and-so and so-and-so. One guy who was in the car was a friend of Howard's named Ben. Ben knew I wasn't in there. He said that very clearly that I didn't go to, I wasn't there. And he, he admits he was there. It's not like he was trying to hide himself. You know, I wasn't there. 
and and but that's what probably clinched it for them that I was at this days of rage fighting cops. Howard says he wasn't in the car. The FBI says he was. Howard says he was never part of the Weather Underground. The FBI says he was, or at least affiliated. And in some ways, what really happened didn't matter. It was what the FBI thought that mattered. As I've said, J. Edgar Hoover told agents coast to coast to shut down the new left. By May of 1968, the St. Louis Bureau had investigations focused on four groups that were my father's clients, including SDS, which the FBI knew Howard was a part of. And the FBI was watching them, an agent told Hoover, waiting for a moment that might be utilized to good advantage. Dan Bartlett was the FBI's partner in that effort as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri. In February of 1970, Bartlett investigated an arson of an ROTC building on the WashU campus. He convened a grand jury and subpoenaed a bunch of students. One was Dev Kennedy, whose speech in California had drawn the attention of the FBI three years earlier. I took the Fifth Amendment on everything. I have to say that I wasn't particularly frightened at any of that point, but when I look back on it, I should have been. I guess I had the feeling that right would win out in the end, which was, I now feel, was extremely naive, that right doesn't always win out in the end. I didn't realize what could really, in my gut, didn't realize what could really happen. My dad's clients all took the fifth. The February arson was never solved. Bartlett wasn't going to let that happen again. He contacted the head of the FBI's St. Louis Bureau, J. Wallace LaProd, and instructed him to get whatever they could on these students, anything they might be able to use against them in the future. You might recognize LaProd's name. He's the agent who placed a bug in Martin Luther King's hotel room in Milwaukee. And he's the agent who broke up Jane Sauer's marriage with that fake letter to her husband. Hoover praised LaProd's work. But there were things that rankled him, too. That February arson. LaProd's agents hadn't come up with the evidence to nail whoever had done it. They weren't going to let that happen again. The next time these students violated the law, they were going to pay for it. More after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. 
Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The second ROTC building at WashU went up in flames on the night of May 4, 1970, the night of the Kent State murders. Dan Bartlett had a front row seat. You might remember that there was a man in a tuxedo standing at the edge of the crowd, watching as the building burned. That was Bartlett. In the days after the fire, Howard Mechanic was among the first people arrested. I wasn't trying to avoid risk because I figured that's, you know, they're looking for me. I just may as well deal with the situation. Local police picked him up for violating an injunction. He'd been barred from protesting on campus. So just being there that night was a crime. Seven other students were arrested as well. My father represented two of them, Howard and a guy named Larry Kogan. Howard admitted that he was there at the protest. That was it. But one witness had another story, that he'd seen Howard throwing a cherry bomb in the direction of the police. A single witness. That couldn't possibly be enough to convict Howard. About a month later, a strange thing happened. Howard and Larry were both arrested again, along with several others. This time, it wasn't local authorities who showed up at their doors. It was the FBI. Four million students protested on more than 900 campuses after the Kent State murders. Buildings were burned. A lot of students were arrested. But in all my research, I never found another instance of federal charges being filed. It only happened in St. Louis. Howard and Larry were charged under an obscure provision of the 1968 Civil Rights Act. Not the most obvious weapon against activists. They had a section in there prohibiting interfering with police or fire personnel protecting a federal function during a civil disorder. No one had ever used this provision in a case against anti-war protesters. But Dan Bartlett and the FBI, they had a plan. A couple of weeks after the federal charges were filed, the verdict on the local charges came down. Guilty. Howard Mechanic and Larry Kogan got six months in jail. My father filed an appeal, and they all waited. Howard's federal trial began in October. My father got him to cut his hair and put on a suit. My dad and Howard sat at the defense table. On the prosecution side, there was the U.S. attorney Dan Bartlett, his assistant U.S. attorney, and an FBI agent. They were charging me with interfering with fire or police personnel during a, a civil disorder. First, the prosecution had to establish that there was a civil disorder. They called 19 witnesses to the stand. So they bring in a whole bunch of people and show this big riot. Look at all this fire, this damage to the ROTC building. So if, if you're in the jury, you're seeing a fire and you're seeing riots and the fire personnel saying that they heard a firecracker go off or saw one go off nearby. And none of them mentioned my name. But then the prosecution called a familiar witness. Then I was <laughs> cooked. Remember that witness who said he'd seen Howard throwing a cherry bomb at the police? He was back. That was the only one witness who mentioned my name. 
And that was Dick Bird. Dick Bird died years ago, so I couldn't talk to him. If I could have, I would have asked him why his story about that night kept changing. At first he started saying there were firecrackers coming from my area. Then he was saying there were a cherry bomb coming from my body. Then he said, I definitely threw a cherry bomb. And people who look at that and they say, well, this is the only witness. And that's what he's saying. How can I get convicted on that? And that's all they got. The trial was supposed to last two weeks. It lasted only four days. In his closing, my father argued that the government was trying to punish Howard for the actions of 3,000 protesters. In their closing, the prosecution acknowledged that there were definite contradictions in evidence. That's a quote. But they looked at the jury and said, you can choose to believe the police and the firefighters or this troublemaker, Howard Mechanic. The jury of five women and seven men came back with a verdict in an hour. Guilty. A group of professors paid Howard's bond. One put up his house as collateral. A week later, the judge sentenced Howard Mechanic to five years in federal prison and a $10,000 fine. A lot of people nowadays don't understand how they could throw this on some kid. Even if I did throw a cherry bomb, but I never had a record and never had any problems, how they could charge somebody with a six-month sentence and then a five-year sentence there was a split in the country, and the FBI wanted to stop the anti-war movement. And this was a test case. This was to show everybody that we're serious. You don't want to do anything like this anymore. It wasn't justice. It was a message. It was to stop these demonstrations. To put all this in context, between January 1969 and April 1970, there were 4,330 political bombings in America, plus 1,175 attempted bombings, and more than 35,000 bomb threats. And again, on the night of May 4, 1970, buildings were burned on campuses all over the country. Yet nowhere, except in St. Louis, were federal charges ever filed. Maybe the circumstance just fell into place for them. It- could have happened somewhere else to somebody else. I just happened to be the lucky guy, I guess. That's, that's my impression, is that this is an opportunity for them to throw the book at me, but throw the book at everybody at the same time, because everybody would get the message. A final word about Dick Bird, star witness for the prosecution. He had been a low-performing law student on academic probation. But after graduation, and after his testimony, Dick Bird won a prestigious clerkship with a federal judge in Milwaukee. Eventually, he went on to become an assistant attorney general for the state of Missouri. My father immediately appealed the federal conviction, but Howard would have to fight that case from behind bars. In December, he and Larry Kogan reported to a jail called Gumbo to serve the six months they'd gotten on the local charge. They told the other prisoners Do not talk to Mechanic. Do not talk to Kogan, or you'll be in trouble. They told us 
we don't want you agitating in our prison. And they didn't tell us that they were gonna isolate us. They just told all the prisoners. So we go to the gym where there's 50 people, you know, try to get some exercise. And somebody comes up to me and then a guard would say, get away from mechanic. I was pretty apprehensive a lot of the time. The guards would threaten me. One of them said, if I have a chance, I'm gonna put a bullet in your head. And uh, that's when I decide I couldn't do five years of this. In addition to Howard and Larry, six other people were arrested and charged by the federal government in connection with the May 4th riot. Joe Eisenberg stands out for me as a particularly tragic example of the human cost of all this. He wasn't even a student at WashU or an activist. He was a 19-year-old kid who had just gotten out of the Navy. He lived with his mother near WashU, And while he was on the campus on the night of the 4th, he wasn't there for the protests. Well, the reason I went to campus that night was with a couple of friends to pick up some LSD. He was there to buy acid, but then the FBI came looking for him. They came to the house and questioned me. Had a bunch of pictures that I knew no one in. I identified myself in this one photograph. In that picture, he was standing next to someone who was arrested and charged with sabotage. Joe was arrested, too, and thrown in city jail. It was old, and it was overcrowded. I was a third guy in a two-man cell, so I was on the floor under a bunk. I was there for five days. Dad would not bail me out. Uh, Finally, one of my mom's aunts bailed me out. I mean, I never really thought that I would be convicted of this because I never had anything to do with any of it. But he was convicted. Initially facing a recommended sentence of 60 years, Joe Eisenberg was ultimately sentenced to two years in prison. Far less than six decades, Still a heavy price for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Six months of his sentence was to be served in the U.S. Medical Center in Springfield, Missouri, a psychiatric facility. My father was there every weekend. (laughs) It was the worst part about being locked up was my dad coming there every week and spending four or five hours in the visiting room where we'd just sit there and stare at walls. We had little to say to one another, but his attitude was he wanted me to be around normal people as much as he can make that happen. So, I mean, his intent was good, but it wasn't good for me. Joe was scarred by these experiences. He was a kid looking to buy acid. Then he spent the next four years in court fearing that he was going to spend 60 years in prison and then locked up in a mental institution, though he had no mental illness. I live in fear of everything, always. And I think that I learned that when I was locked up. It was like, this stuff really does happen. You know, we are truly pawns to them. Once you go through something like that, you start seeing things differently. In December of 1971, the Eighth Circuit denied Howard and Larry Cogan's appeal, 
My father made a last-ditch pitch to the U.S. Supreme Court. But on May 15, 1972, the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. It was the end of the road for the legal challenges. Remember, I was in a pay phone, and I called, and was told uh, it was denied, and that was the time that uh, the die was cast as permanently that I wasn't going to be coming back. Larry Kogan, my father's other client, surrendered and was sent to the same psychiatric hospital where Joe Eisenberg had done his time. Like Joe, Larry wasn't diagnosed with any mental illness. On May 26, 1972, Howard Mechanic became a fugitive. I didn't really know what I was getting involved in, except for a new life. I bought a ticket, wanted to go out west where it was warm and sunny. I liked the southwest, so I got the ticket to Albuquerque and got off the bus and it was cold. And so I decided, well, I'm not gonna stay here. So I went to the, the bus and I said, well, I wanna go to what's down the road <laughs> where it's warmer. <laughs> you know, I thought it was gonna be warm here. And they said, well, Phoenix, uh, you know, I said, okay, well, I'll get it ticket to Phoenix. He got onto the bus as Howard Lawrence Mechanic. He got off as Gary Raymond Treadway. Next time on My Fugitive. I got the guy's birth certificate from Los Angeles, and it was typed in 1948, and they had a certain type of font from the typewriter. So what I was figuring to do, I'm going to change the name, take his name off, and put in Gary Robert Treadway. I said to her, I met this guy and I think he's the one. And the only issue that I can tell is that he just doesn't feel like a Gary to me. I always knew my dad as my dad. So it didn't matter to me that like, okay, this isn't your real name. Your real name is a different name. People asked me to run for city council. <laughs> And uh, that was a mistake for me to agree, but I just uh, continued on a certain path, and it's like you're on a train and you stay on the train, and that's what happened. My Fugitive is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. You can binge all episodes from this series exclusively on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey has all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. This show is hosted by me, Nina Gildan-Seeby. Our producers are Kat Aaron, Agarenish Ashagre, Justine Daum, Janelle Anderson, and Maria Robbins-Somerville, with additional production support from Sandra Ellen. The show is edited by Joel Lovell, with support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Research and fact-checking by Charles Richter and Ben Phelan. Our engineers are Noriko Okabe, Hannes Brown, and Will Bigwood. This episode features original compositions by Daoud Anthony and Hannes Brown, and music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our executive producers, Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thank you to each of our guests for joining us to help tell this story. To see photos, FBI documents, and more, follow us on Instagram at MyFugitivePodcast 
and visit our website at myfugitivepodcast.com.